entertainment, sports, culture. This is Raleigh Co. Radio, podcast presented by Raleigh and Company. edition of Spooning with Dimitri. I am the aforementioned Spooner, Dimitri. Uh, I'm very excited about this week's episode because I think this is a a cool um, a cool interview that fits what we're doing here, but at the same time is super different from uh, anyone we've talked to before. Today's guest is Sam Ratto. He and his wife own uh, Vidiri, uh downtown in Raleigh. Now, not only does uh, Sam and his wife, not only do Sam and his wife own the place, Sam is also the head chocolate maker there. And Videri is a place that for only having been open for about three years, it has made a major, uh, major footprint for itself, not only here in Raleigh, but uh, in the in the candy game as well. So it was really cool to get to talk to Sam uh, and find out how he got to this point. And, and I was I was shocked when I found out, and you'll hear him talk about this, I was shocked when I found out he does not come from a long line of uh, chocolatiers, chocolate makers, you would think that that is this this profession, making chocolate, making candy, is something that is handed down, something you learn from generations. But really, it was uh, it was farming that was handed down in Sam's family, and uh, that is, and you'll hear him talk about this. That is why he was so easily able to identify chocolate as being his path, calling, whatever it is. Uh, you want to call it. The song I chose for today is Tom Petty's You Got Lucky. And you'll hear very early on Sam say that he felt like he got lucky uh, when chocolate found him. And then he also talks a little bit later on in the interview about the luck and success that Videri has had and the sheer luck that just days after opening his doors, his wife tells him that he's going to be a dad. Hard not to feel like Sam is a really lucky guy, and hard not to feel like Raleigh is lucky for having such a cool place like Videri in our community. So enjoy this week's episode of uh, Spooning with Dimitri and my chat with uh, Videri's Sam Ratto. Notice the the couple times I've come into Videri, you've got you guys actually have a pretty large cafe operation mm-hmm. too going on there. Is that was there also a love for coffee when you started the chocolate factory, or or was that like a it's it's a kind of a natural pairing? Um, I mean, we all love coffee, sure, uh, but it would be more about when we were first starting our business. How do we integrate both of those things? Uh-huh. And we wanted to make great chocolate first. Right. And then build into that. Yeah. And then we had the space for it. So that was really the like timeline of it would mm-hmm. be that uh, more specifically. And when you're when you're thinking about starting the business, I mean, I, I guess the cafe 
and if I'm wrong, tell me, but I, I would guess the cafe almost is an integral part in, in that, in, in the sense that how do you take a chocolate, how do you take a kitchen that just makes chocolate and turn it into something other than just, all right, it's made here and then we ship it there. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's why getting a good partner like Stumptown Coffee mm-hmm. um, in that, that base of coffee can help us build a great mocha. Yeah. Stuff like that. So, um, and the cafe allows us to have a more pointed seating area for people to come and mm-hmm. sit down and, you know, they can take the tour and then go get a sipping chocolate and sit down and, and hang out. And when the weather's nice, they can go out on the patio yeah. <laughs> and hang out <laughs> when the weather's nice. Um, so that's, that's where we build that partnership is that it was a great place for us to build more things with chocolate. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about how you became passionate about chocolate to the point that that's what you wanted to make your your business, your life. I got lucky. Um, I got lucky that it was something that I, I, I wouldn't say I found. Um, I got to, I got to find it in the way that I was doing something else with my life because I was going back to school to be a superintendent of golf courses, mm-hmm. um, and chocolate found me. Really, and once it found me. <laughs> I was able to just kind of force everything else in my life to be about a chocolate business. Yeah. Um, and it's what I'll do for the rest of my working life. Yeah. <laughs> and it found you how? I mean, was there an opportunity to work at a different candy kitchen? There was. Um, and I would I would say that it was, it was that and then a combination of my background as being raised by farmers. Mm-hmm. And then sort of seeing that more direct connection and specifically living in Raleigh when... Almost every restaurant you go eat at has some some connection with a direct farm, right? Or it's it's everything about like where did we get this produce from, or where did we get this fish from? Mm-hmm. And then it became everything about chocolate making was well, how do I get better beans? How do I get more educated? How do I get more informed? And then all the questions that I was asking um, about that stuff were getting answered by people in Europe people in Central and South America, all these different places. And then it was just really exciting. Yeah. <laughs> it just became like, oh, I want to know more about that. And you could keep on finding out information. Yeah. So, and, and you guys do actually a pretty good job, I think. And for people that have not taken the the tour at Videri, um, you know, there is a there is a small, albeit information-packed sort of turn with, uh, yeah. you know, where the beans come from, why it's important that you do things the way you do, why dark chocolate, and, and we'll get into all that in just a second. But it's very clear that it's important to you that even, let's say, even just 25% of people read every panel and don't walk straight to the viewing part mm-hmm. of the kitchen. It's important to you that that 25% understands every aspect of how it goes from growing to in your bar oh yeah and i mean when we first opened my wife and i would give that speech to everybody yeah so that information board is the person that might not want to ask a question maybe they you know they might think that oh if i ask this question they're gonna think i'm stupid (laughs) right (laughs) um and then the other part of it is that you know it's very hard to always answer what is white chocolate Mm -hmm. that's just that's one of the questions on the board is like what is white chocolate right right there if you have another question about that we would love to talk to you about it mm-hmm. um and the other part about the information panel is you give that anybody that like springboard to ask another question somebody might not know what conching is or they might not even know what that concept is and they walk into that sign and go i don't know what conching is yeah 
And if you happen to see one of us like walking around or something, ask us that question and we'll go, oh, this is what conjuring is. Yeah. That's why it's important. Um, and it's why we started our business. I mean, we wanted to be a place where if you walked into a chocolate factory and you said, oh, this is like Willy Wonka, we go, well, it's a little different. <laughs> but that's not a knock on us. Like, right. We don't get a lot of people that walk in there and say, oh, this is like Willy Wonka in a bad way. Right, right. You know, so we don't ever It's like want... Willy Wonka without the colorful midgets. Yeah, yeah. It's a, you know, we we want we wanted that, that place to evoke that sense of happiness or joy um, to every single person that walked in there. Mm-hmm. And we get a lot of people that, that say, oh, this is, this is whatever. I don't care. Yeah. You guys really manufactured this place. And we're like, well, okay. <laughs> you want some chocolate? Like, it's yeah. like... It's one thing, and then it's just, do you want some chocolate? And it's really fun because nine out of ten times when somebody comes in there in a grumpy mood, they mm-hmm. usually leave in a pretty good mood. Right. Because they got chocolate. And that's sort of our whole entire vibe. Like, it's just chocolate. And so all that information is just pointing us towards somebody asking a question or about their curiosity. Yeah. And we have a lot of school groups that come in, and, you know, there's two or three teachers and then, like, 20 kids. Mm-hmm. The kids don't care. After about four minutes, they're like, I don't care. Yeah. And it's the teachers that are like, what about this? What about this machine? What does that thing do? And it's kind of the neatest thing to to see that in action. Well, that's, you know, go with the with the kids. My, my kids are, uh, I have a three-year-old son and a five-year-old daughter. And, you know, when you think about going back to the, the cafe part of it, there are not a lot of cafes that toddlers look forward to <laughs> toward, to going toward uh, to go to, but it was it was not only actually watching the chocolate being made, seeing all the machines in the kitchen and stuff like that. My son, my three year old, was so enamored with the molds, <laughs> you know, and, and the chocolate yeah. coming out of the molds that there was a lot of. Uh, you know, not just the not just the how chocolate is made questions, but the very like down to well, why does the mold look that way? How does the chocolate slide out of the mold? I mean, it is you have created not just a uh, not just a cafe, not just a candy company. You've created an attraction for downtown Raleigh, really. Yeah, and and we love that. That's that was something that grew organically from uh, all the other pieces of equipment that we had to get to mm-hmm. make proper chocolate. Yeah. Um, and we love that. And we love answering questions about those things. Yeah. And it's pretty fun. So when you guys started the business, uh, sort of take me back to the, uh, I guess, the, the the dance, for lack of a better word, because this is, you know, they're not a whole lot of chocolatiers um, around, period. But certainly Raleigh is not the kind of place that's overflowing with these sorts of businesses, was there was there excitement over we can fill that niche, or was there concern of, boy, we're not only going to be uh, filling that niche, we're actually going to be testing the water here for whoever might want to do this next? Um, I don't. When I moved to Raleigh from California, I found my home, mm-hmm. and it 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 broke my mom's heart. But yeah, um, I, I was what like, part of California? Uh, Southern California, mm-hmm. the last place my my then uh, fiance. Now, my wife lived was Long Beach, California. Okay. Um, and, you know, we we talked a lot about it, you know, like, should we move back to California and start this? Should we go somewhere else? Mm-hmm. Like, what do we do? And it was about a four minute conversation. Like, oh, we want to do it in Raleigh. Yeah. Um, and being a being a chocolate maker is a distinction versus a chocolatier. There are quite a few chocolatier shops in and around this area mm-hmm. um, and really good ones that the distinction is you buy chocolate that comes in a box usually and gotcha. you melt it down and you do something with it. Whereas 
us at Videri, we're a chocolate factory that makes chocolate that then makes things that uh, treats and bonbons and whatnot. Too. Yeah. So you're a chocolate maker is a chocolatier is more of a, would you call them like closer to like a candy maker? Almost. Yeah, I guess that would be the the easiest way to describe mm-hmm. it. Um, and I don't get hung up on it. It's just a very, it's an interesting distinction because we're actually making chocolate. Right. Um, and for us in Raleigh, I mean, it was, it was more about that we knew that people here wanted more chocolate. You know, because who doesn't anyway? Yeah, who doesn't? Yeah, <laughs> um, and I always, I've always said this um, since I've been in the industry for heck, it'll almost be six years now. Um, that the more chocolate there is, the better. Yeah, kind of like the more breweries there are, the better. Yeah, the more coffee roasters there are, the better. Um, and if if this town, in my opinion, can support two, three, four, five chocolate makers. It's not about just what happens in your space. It's everything that you do. Mm-hmm. So if you're a chocolate maker and your business is wholesale and it's all about spreading the word to Whole Foods and different like a Parker Notice or a Deco or a Nofo, those sorts of places, then there's ample room for it. Um, if you just want to do very specifically like this is we make it here, you come in and have this experience. Mm-hmm. Or if it's more based around you want to sell chocolate to bakers and chefs and other chocolatiers. So I think the market's out there. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if, let's say, you could have 50 chocolate makers in Raleigh. But if the population grows and people are interested in it and you make good stuff and you have good customer service, I don't see why not. Mm-hmm. Were you uh, prepared for uh, the part of the business that is going to Deco and Nofo and places like that and saying, here's what we do? you know, we'd like for you to stock this. What was that sort of, um, I guess, when and where did those skills for you start to pay off as, I guess, in, in correlation to being able to make really good chocolate? It's not my, um, it's not my department. Really? <laughs> <laughs> um, my wife is the reason that we have any accounts. Um, yeah. she's the reason that people come in and get the experience they get at the mm-hmm. counter. Um, if it wasn't for her, I don't know how many accounts we would have had yeah. or have now. Um, and the way that she builds her team um, in wholesale at Sienna, that her and Sienna work together on like getting new accounts, keeping up with accounts, and then making sure that any account that we get is happy with the chocolate that they get. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the retail side of it, it's Roxanne runs that that portion of it with my wife and it's if it wasn't for the group of them i mean i'm not a very good salesman i might (laughs) i might sound like i'm a good salesman but i'm not it's sometimes too hard to separate the amount of work that it takes to make chocolate with somebody saying something that would be offhandedly like a rude comment right and i i'm very good at raising my hand and saying i'm not good at this right and it was very clear to me that I was not really good at selling chocolate at our counter. Mm-hmm. Now, if I go to a conference or like I have a talk at um, NC State tomorrow with um, with a group of people and I'm really good at that. I'm really good at talking about chocolate making. Yeah. But when it comes to like tabling and and converting somebody that walks up and says, oh, you're a hipster. I don't want to buy this from you <laughs> to, oh, this tastes like dirt to buying chocolate that's not my right not my skill set and that is and a side note is the best the best way to run a business is knowing what you're not good at yeah and so that's kind of a tricky way of answering that question but 
it's not my skill set. No, but it, but <laughs> it, but it does sort of then lead me to another question, which is, um, and I think everybody that is in any sort of business where something is created probably has the same problem you do, where then when you go out to sell it, people that then don't immediately recognize the amount of work that goes into it. Uh, that can be, I don't want to say crushing, but that can be very like, um, it's, it's, it's not as easy to let it roll off your back yeah. as say a guy that is selling you a car, right? Oh yeah. Um, cause he didn't build that car. Exactly. He's just trying to make $3,000 off you. Exactly. <laughs> so when you are then, uh, getting ready to go into the retail side, whether it is retail or wholesale, um, are you, are you really putting a lot of thought into the price, like the price it's going to be sold for? I mean, like, was there ever a time that you were kind of shocked by not how much it cost you to make the chocolate, but in order to uh, convey uh, the message that Videri is premium chocolate, in order to cover your costs and be able to pay your people that work with you, was there ever a time you looked at the price and thought, all right, I guess I got to get comfortable with this if we're going to go forward? I didn't. No. Um, it wasn't very hard for me. I mean, the, and please don't take that to me. I'm, I mean, I'm saying that your chocolate is no, too expensive. No, I really no. wanted to understand I, the science I mean, behind you, it. You, you phrased it very nicely. It, it's real. Like, yeah. It's, it's not about how much I want to make off the chocolate. It's the fact that we have people that work for us now that are uh, going to be able to buy houses. Right. You know, that that's is an important part of it is me looking at what the commodity price of cocoa beans are and paying double that every mm-hmm. single time or more because I value added product throughout the whole chain. So if there's graphs and all these sorts of different things that show you like who makes the most money and who makes the least and farmers on our scale are still at that two to five percent of a total cost of good mm-hmm. product. Um, and for me, it wasn't. The the hardest part for us wasn't, is the market going to accept this? Like, we're still in the 80th percentile of, like, bean-to-bar craft or artisan chocolate in America. Mm-hmm. And there's better or worse chocolate that costs more than our chocolate. Right. And when we're building out that as a total product where somebody would pick it up and go, this is worth $8. Mm-hmm. Or I'll give this a shot for $8. But the craziest part is when we make 90% chocolate, like our Good Food Award-winning Ecuadorian bar, Somebody tries it, they buy it. Yeah. If they don't get an opportunity to try it, it's a little bit harder of a sell for like a first time buyer. Mm-hmm. But that's $12 for three ounces of chocolate. Yeah. And that is at the top end of our market. I mean, there's a couple, there's a guy, Rogue, um, that sells a bar for $18 that is, for all intents and purposes, a really amazing, delicious bar of chocolate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like if, as a community of bean to bar chocolate makers, if we want to, really give back and enable farmers in different countries to make a better product and enhance their lives on whatever level they want to. Yeah. It's going to have to be 10, 12, 15, $20 a bar mm-hmm. um, because of all of the global Im- implications of all those different things. Yeah. So the, it wasn't hard for me. Right. <laughs> so when, when you guys do, and you do such good work with dark chocolate, um, there are wine sommeliers want you to try. There are, um, you know, coffee beans that coffee grinders want you to try. Obviously, you you have a passion for dark chocolate, I would guess, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, is there a part of you that when you are out with your wife, that do you sort of cringe or die a little bit inside when you see someone unwrap a Hershey bar? 
Uh, not really. I mean, because if it wasn't for those companies, we wouldn't be here. Yeah. Like, and on both ends, like infrastructure wise, machinery, all mm-hmm. these different things. And then the bit about spite or like chip on your shoulder. Yeah. That when somebody opens one of those bars, you go, yeah, you're eating that because it's a dollar seventy five or whatever. <laughs> right. And you want it, it motivates you to want them to try your chocolate mm-hmm. as well. So, you know in a in a larger sense like does the chocolate industry exist in the way it does without a hershey a nestle or a mars probably not yeah um mars for on one end of their business has done a lot of research and propagated a lot of different places and planted a lot of different seedlings to test genetics and all these different things like disease disease resistance so if they don't do those things for their own like business Mm -hmm. we don't get to like I would say pick up the scraps of those parts of that business. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't support it, but I I admire it on some level. Right. I don't celebrate it. Right. <laughs> but yeah, it's one of those things where I I don't. Uh, I try not to be a, a total jerk about it all the time. Yeah, but but still sense. knowing as much as you know about chocolate itself, and then the or cocoa itself, and then the production of chocolate, I would imagine that. Uh, again, I mean, like, I'll just use Hershey because it's the only like, you know, mm-hmm. bar with nothing in it that I can yeah. I can think of. Um, that probably doesn't even really taste like chocolate to you. Not a lot. Yeah. No. And it's it's sort of the biggest bummer about um, refining your palate or mm-hmm. continuing to like um, match up flavors in your palate um, is that those things that you tried when you were younger or however you got into chocolate. Let's say you went to your grandfather's house and. He always had a Snickers bar in the freezer for you. Yeah. And you're like, oh, this is great. <laughs> and it's the same way with like with beer. You know, I used to drink Bush Light. It's mm-hmm. like a thing. I could go pick up a six pack of Bush Light. Sounds weird. But it was like, oh, this is this is better than a Budweiser. I don't know. It's right. a thing that I would say ever now. <laughs> but as you get further into craft beer, you start losing that taste for bush light tasting like honey yeah or even for budweiser or for budweiser yeah yeah. and you start losing that and you're seeing it across so many different spectrums of of different kinds of food and food systems that it's kind of neat but at the same time you're like oh man i just yeah i kind of wish that i could be ignorant enough to (laughs) to go back and just be like yeah i drank a couple of those beers yesterday or i had that bar of chocolate and it tasted like whatever yeah but i think again working so hard it's hard to Kind of circle back around to that. Yeah. Um, that you could easily just go, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Tastes like chocolate. So what does that then do? What sort of uh, challenges that create for you with the marketplace? Um, it. I mean, because you're right. Like so many people, their introduction to chocolate was grandpa always had a Snickers bar for me. Something, yeah. yeah. Um, it's a challenge, but it's not a hard. I don't think it's as hard as transition as like when uh, John Scharfenberger started his company in 1999. Mm-hmm. where he was like, this is what chocolate tastes like. And people were like, no, yeah, I think you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, what, six years later, he got bought by Hershey. Mm-hmm. So there's some, there there is traffic or traction in the marketplace that people want to buy those things. Right. Um, and I don't think it's that hard of an education point if somebody really wants to try it. Yeah. If somebody, if somebody comes in and tries the five varieties of chocolate that we have, mm-hmm. and they don't like any of them, that's very rare. Yeah. Um, and then we also have confection. So it's three years ago, I'm trying to 
look at it from our specific specific perspective of three years ago, it was a little bit harder. Now it's like, oh, that sea salt is delicious. Right. But at the same time, we're getting a little bit better at crafting a more delicious chocolate product mm-hmm. so that it's a little bit easier for somebody that only eats Snickers bar to have our dark milk chocolate. Right. Well, you know, I, I came in over Christmas and a, a lot of friends and family that live, uh, I grew up in Alabama, so a lot of friends and family still down there. That's what they got was the the sampler pack. And, you know, I think I made three or four trips to Vidir. And every time you, know, you pick up a little peppermint bark for you. right? Yeah. Uh, and I just remember thinking that the um, the flavor of the peppermint bar, uh, like just that that pure chocolate flavor and that pure peppermint flavor, like without the abundance of sugar, the abundance of extra sugar. Um those are two really good, really intense flavors together. Yeah. Um, and excuse me, I wouldn't say that it forever ruined me for uh, for other chocolates. I mean, you know, I'm my other job is a movie critic, so of course I'll have the bunch of crunch and stuff oh, like yeah. that while oh, I'm yeah. sitting in the theater. But it is like it's like I'm not even eating. You almost hate to call, and this is a weird reversal of what I mean, but it's almost like you hate to call what you're eating with Vidiri chocolate, the the, the the peppermint bar. You almost hate to call that chocolate because of what everyone else thinks of chocolate as. Like, this is something <laughs> on a different plane, almost. That's, that's magical. <laughs> um, that's what we're going for. We're try- And again, that is an all-organic product. Yeah. Those are all high-quality beans. The amount of cocoa butter we put in there is organic. Mm-hmm. It's organic cane sugar. Um, those those peppermint pieces have no artificial ingredients, and it's a combination of us knowing how to build a flavor profile of the chocolate to balance and to sort of highlight that peppermint flavor. Yeah, and it's wonderful. It absolutely yeah. is wonderful. We love making that bar. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the bar uh, that was the award-winning bar for you guys, I can never remember the, the name the of it. The 90% Ecuadorian bar from the, we get the beans from Camino Verde Plantation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that bar, not only is it, um, not only has it won awards, it also gets recognition from, was it GQ that called it one of the 50 things you have to put in your mouth? Or? Yeah, that was crazy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, tell me how that how you get that news. Do they let you know, hey, we've tasted this and this will be in the next issue? Or does someone say, hey, have you picked up the new issue of GQ? Uh, it's a combination of those two things. Uh, we got a call on a Thursday that they were doing a photo shoot, possibly to highlight it in GQ. Mm-hmm. On They needed it by Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they don't tell you where it's going to be or how it's going to be highlighted. I mean, of all those 50 things to eat right now, there was 12 pictures in that whole spread, yeah. I'd say. So, you know, they asked for a whole bunch of stuff, and we sent them what we could. And then when we got the, excuse me, when we actually got the issue, it was in the middle of the page. Wow. And it was huge. Um, and for things like that, it's, I, I'm I'm never going to try and get press because I make something. Right. If we get press because we make something, that's really awesome, and it helps our business and those really neat things. But um, so it wasn't like a matter of um, you found out they were looking to put this list together and you sent them a bar. No. And there are um, there are parts of our business that are like that. Mm-hmm. Um, PR and all sure. that sort of pointed marketing where you, you know, Garden and Gun might say, oh, we're looking for the best food in the South right now or the best food in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And you send them something and they look at it in recognition. That one was purely organic. Yeah. Um and it's great. I mean, it's my favorite chocolate to make. It's my favorite chocolate to eat. 
Um, if it were up, purely up to me, I would I would have a shop that sells ninety percent Ecuadorian <laughs> chocolate. Um, not going to make any money, but that's what so that was going to be my question of that. Is it a matter of uh, the price of manufacturing that bar, or is it the demand for that bar is not there to do it year round? I mean, it's the same thing as uh, a brewer brewing sour beers. Not everybody yeah, yeah. that comes in is going to want a sour beer, but if you love sour beers, you know where to get them. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it would be that hard to really convince every single person to buy a 90% bar that mm-hmm. tastes that good, but it's my goal as a chocolate maker to find beans that I can make in a 90% chocolate that you know you're getting a more intense flavor profile, right? but you're not being beat over the head with, like, this is what 90% chocolate is supposed to taste like. Right. Is there a season for cocoa beans? Um, they have two, sometimes three harvest seasons. Mm-hmm. Um and our, different parts of the world have early early harvest in December, January, and late harvest in August, September. And they switch around depending on where you're at and what the farmer says is the early, which would be, I would call it like a younger um, harvest and a more mature ripe harvest. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's more about where where you get the beans from and how the farmer grows them mm-hmm. than it is about seasonality in that sense. Um, you can't grow them in greenhouses. Uh, there's no seed banks for mm-hmm. these things. And every variety of beans, depending on how it is grown, harvested, and then fermented, and then shipped to you, has more to do with the flavor than, let's say, oh, I somebody went out into the Amazon jungle and found these beans that are a direct uh, descendant of, like, the original cacao tree. Yeah. If they harvest it and ferment it incorrectly, quote-unquote, it doesn't matter. Right. So it's it's very interesting, all the different varieties that you... I think there's 9,000 that they've mapped, mm-hmm. different varieties of cacao trees. Um, it's interesting more on that level of... If you find good genetics and then farmer or group or co-op gets them into your shop and they're delicious and then you process them well, that's huge. How, how do you decide which variety you're going to go with? Does a um, does a, the, the farmer group or co-op, do they send you the beans or it, for you to do with what you want or do they provide you you know a, a sample of what they made with the beans? Uh they're, they're farmers, so they're sending you beans. Yeah. So, like, you can – it depends, too, on, like, if you're going with a single farmer, a co-op, or, let's say, like, a broker house. Mm-hmm. Um, on a bigger scale broker house, you can actually ask them for, like, a 70-kilo bag as a sample. Yeah. Um, a small shareholder farmer, if you travel down there and you can see their operation and you can taste some of the stuff down there, or usually it's a one- to five-pound sample of fermented beans. Mm-hmm. And then you can – after you get enough experience, you can um, you can ascertain quality pretty quickly. Yeah, you can see if the fermentation is good. You can see if there's um, some delicate notes that you really like, or you can just see the size of the beans and the way that they look. If there's ten to fifteen different sizes of beans in a sample bag, that might educate your decision on whether or not to buy more of those. Mm-hmm. If the beans are more uniform, um, that might educate it. But it all comes down to personal preference. So like. If I like beans, like a, if I get a sample of beans and I'm like, I don't really prefer that, there's another American bean to bar maker that might get those and say, I love that. Yeah. And they might win an award for it. 
So hmm. it's it's all about personal preference and your palate and how you feel like you could you know sell that to people. For you, has there been a decent amount of travel, a decent amount of going to these farms? Yeah, um, I'm actually what day is today? The second of March that we're recording this. I'm about to get on a plane to go to Trinidad for a week. Oh wow! And um, and live in in the house of a of a farmer that's been farming this plot of land for thirty years. Mm-hmm. Um, and go walk around the the plantation with a machete and like hang out. Wow! <laughs> and uh, and do some work and learn more about certain kinds of fermentation. Um, and then I go to Belize in April early May and then Dominican Republic in September ish, like during their harvest season. Um, and then possibly one other trip. It doesn't hurt. The cacao is mostly grown in places that are great to visit. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Um, I, uh, I try not to do, um, I call it hipster traveling where you go visit a farm for a half a day and then spend three more days on a beach. Right. I don't see anything wrong with that, mm-hmm. but as a small business owner, that's really busy. It's hard for me to sort of right now, to rationalize doing it that way. Yeah. So when I first started out, I wanted to make good chocolate and then go visit farms where there's people that they want to go visit farms and then make good chocolate. Um, I just, I, I was raised by farmers, so I understand what it's like to work on a farm Mm -hmm. and to go visit for one day to a farmer is more disrespectful than saying, I want to learn as much as I can about how you are making this. So the thing that I make from it, highlights what you do for a living right. every single day. Right. So for me, going down to these farms is is a very interesting and powerful way of connecting my family's heritage to chocolate making. What kind of farmers were your parents? They're leafy greens people. Ah, very um, good. And it's my, my dad's side of the family. They're what you have to get through to get to your chocolate as a child. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, my dad's side of the family is they still actually run a, a family farm in uh, Northern California. Mm-hmm. And my mom's side of the family, um, her dad was a apple farmer. Yeah. Um, so it was very interesting connecting the dots a couple of months ago. I always get the question, how do you make such good chocolate? Mm-hmm. How did you get into chocolate or whatever? And I didn't go to culinary school. I'm not a trained chocolatier. I didn't have like a quick connector for people to go, oh, okay, this is why this is good. Yeah. And I was walking around this farm in Trinidad and I was talking to my uncle or I was talking to my grandfather or I was talking to any one of my family members about farming when I was talking to him. Mm -hmm. And it was very clear. I was like, oh, okay, this is it. Like it's an agricultural product and I love, I love eating chocolate and then I understand the connection of all of those different elements because it's in my blood. Yeah. So coming from that background, coming from the background of um, of farmers, and that is, I think even if you know nothing about farming, you know it's hard work. Yeah. I mean, you know it's a, a uh, dawn to dusk and then probably beyond uh, sort of job. Um, in what way do you structure your time with Vidiri or do you even think about it in terms of structure? I mean, is there, is there time for a personal life with uh, you and your wife? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's taken us almost three years to mm-hmm. get to that point. Um, when we opened the doors of Vidiri, uh, on December 15th, 2011, um, it was just everything, everything we did was about that. And then we found out that we were pregnant a couple of days later, <laughs> which was really interesting. And um, and it was just it was a really tough 
Um, what was that reaction like? Was there a was there a pure happiness, or was there a part of you that went now really pure happiness? Yeah. Um, she actually gave me a card on Christmas Day that said that your present is due on or whatever. However, <laughs> yeah. However, it was put, and it was it was magic. I mean, it was hard work, um, but we have a wonderful two and a half year old mm-hmm. that has just dipped into his terrible twos. Yeah, <laughs> but only like four days a week, so it's totally fine. Um, and the personal life aspect of it is coming from like my grandfather, my dad's dad, when he passed away at his funeral, there was like 700 people, Mm -hmm. probably 200 of those were family members. And the other group was people that he either worked with or were like friends from business. Mm -hmm. So for us, this is our personal life revolves around people we meet at our business. Right. Um, So it's, it's kind of an easy transition for us. It's again, it's one of those things. It's like, it's sort of ingrained in us. Yeah. Like my wife's family, um, ran a a plumbing business in Winston Salem Mm -hmm. and all of, all of her dad's friends and like, uh, and acquaintances are people that they meet through working. Right. Um, so our personal life is centered around like going to pool's diner where we sell chocolate for one of their desserts on the menu. Mm -hmm. Um, or going to trophy to get a beer so all these people that we know and all of our friends are in the industry. Right. So our personal life in that sense is it's pretty easy. You get to go yeah. and eat food that somebody that you know makes. and, and It's almost that. like a George Bailey kind of thing, yeah. right? Where the, uh, the the richness of your life is measured in who else you helped make rich. Yeah. And it's it's a pretty neat thing. And it in Raleigh specifically right now, mm-hmm. it's a really neat time to be here to see all the different businesses that are coming up and all the different people that can help each other even cross promote or send people to different places. Like when somebody comes into Vidaria and goes, Oh, where do you guys eat lunch? Oh, we go, Oh, you go to Capital Club for lunch. Or when Garland's open, you go there for lunch, go there for dinner, uh, go over here, do this. Like when we were closed for uh, our construction two weeks ago, you know, we sent people to Cafe de los Muertos, Jewel Coffee, you know, places like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other day, I think it was Sunday morning. We we don't open until noon on Sundays. And this guy was like, oh, I just want to get a cup of coffee and maybe a brownie. And I was like, well, you should ride your bike two blocks and go to Bolted Bread. Yeah. You know, and those are the sort of things that are, I think, helping this community more than anything. Yeah. It, um, it's it's weird. So I grew up with, uh, my dad was a chef. Um, and that's sort of how I got the inspiration to do this show. Uh, down in Mobile, Alabama, where I grew up, there was... Um, you know, the, the restaurateur community and the chef community, they all knew each other, but it's, I don't know if it is a different generation kind of thing. I don't know if it is a different geographic community kind of thing, but there was always a very guarded, like, I don't want to tell you about what other people, what uh, great things other people are doing because you may never come back. Whereas here, particularly um, with this generation of, of, of chefs and, and, and artisans, um, there is very much a, you know, like you're talking about, you should try bolted bread. You should try Cafe de los Muertos. Um, mm. That is, I don't know, there's a real comfort level with you guys, with each other. Yeah. And I think, I'm not sure who really started it, but in Raleigh specifically, but it, it helps more people. And it also is another comfort level for a customer if you're very open about like what you love. Mm-hmm. You know, we get a lot of people that that'll come in once, maybe they saw it in like something about who knows what and they're like oh i came into very because i saw it on this thing 
And we started talking to them, and our conversation usually just goes to, like, where we go eat. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And then you'll see that customer come back and say, hey, I went to this place. It was really great. And then I went to this place, and it, again, is another step in, like, customer engagement, but it's also just what we like talking about. Right. So I don't know if it's generational or if um, if it's specific to somebody saying to themselves, this is what I do really well. Mm -hmm. This other person does this really well. Mm -hmm. And it's more about like your own self-confidence in your business than it is about, let's say there's seven hamburger places. Right. And you're like, we make the best hamburger. Don't go to that other place. (laughs) Right. That could do your business well, but it could, like you're saying, could be generational where people are like, well, I make this kind of hamburger. Mm -hmm. And then the person two blocks away goes, well, I make this kind of hamburger. Yeah, my, my my thought on it, or I guess sort of the first theory I had on it, is that for so long there was, I don't want to say there was not a great local food scene in Raleigh, but it was not as prevalent as it is right now. Um, so even though I think people, people that... Uh, I don't know what the right way to say it is. The people that are in the know, people that, that do take advantage of all the great local restaurants and, and local food makers and stuff like that down here um, want to celebrate and, and, and spread the word about those kind of things. There is still a large population that gets just as excited about, you know, uh, I don't know Ashley Christensen opening a new place as they do about, oh, hey, there's going to be a second Cheesecake Factory in town yeah. that you want to let those people know, hey, Cheesecake Factory is great. Yeah. But have you tried x yeah and and convert as many of those as you possibly can in whatever way possible yeah i mean there's comfort in in the what is it um in the way those businesses are run Mm -hmm. i mean that you know what is it uh i call starbucks an efficiency cup of coffee now (laughs) yeah (laughs) if i if i'm driving somewhere across the country and i see a starbucks i'm probably going to go in there before i go into a circle k and get a cup of coffee right i don't know what the difference in like the inner workings of those companies like ethics are, Uh but I feel like Starbucks is a little bit better. Yeah. Um, And when you're talking about like somebody getting excited about a cheesecake factory opening downtown or like a bonefish grill, Mm -hmm. let's say for instance, as excited about Ashley opening up death and taxes. I mean, it's pretty interesting to see the different kind of marketing that somebody wants to put behind that sort of thing. Right. And I feel like if you respect somebody's excitement about a bonefish grill opening mm-hmm. as pointing them saying, also, you should try death and taxes. It's pretty incredible. Right. You're right. And not just come at it like bonefish grill. Seriously, dude. Yeah. Yeah. But again, I mean, there's also people and we've learned this, that there's people that do want to be in the know and they want to be in that society of like, oh, well, yeah, you, you probably are the kind of person that likes bonefish grill, you know, and <laughs> right. that's. That's that's uh, human nature. Yeah. So it all depends on which which one you want to be a part of. Yeah. But the more food, the better, um, and the better food, the better. Let's say. Yeah, for sure. So it's it's neat, it's a neat time to be here. That's yeah, for sure. Well, thank you for sitting down with me today. Oh, you're welcome. I had a blast. And enjoy your backbreaking travels to the most gorgeous tropical islands imaginable. Oh man, it's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs>
Chocolate Maker, not Chocolatier. Words matter in the chocolate game, as it turns out. A uh, big thank you to Sam. I really appreciate him sitting down with me. I know, given everything that uh, his life has become with Videri, whether it is the national acclaim, the constant traveling to exotic locations, sitting down for a podcast is about the least interesting thing uh, he could do with his time. So uh, I really appreciate Sam sitting down with me. Coming up next week, G. Patel. He is the owner of Echelon Experiences, owner of uh, six different restaurants across the Triangle. So uh, th- this is a side of the restaurant business and the, and the food game that we really have not gotten into yet, when the restaurant business becomes big business. So G will be with us next week. Thank you so much for uh, sitting down and taking a listen to Spooning with D. D. Dimitri. Come on, we're not that intimately familiar yet. Oh.